So good. So good. Awesome. Well, I have the honor, guys, of introducing our guest speaker today. Um, we have the amazing Raj family in the house. Can we give it up for the Rajas? It's amazing wife, Olivia, and their beautiful daughter, Selah, in the house. I'm going to honor you guys. Uh, Isaac has been a dear friend of the house. They've been, uh, been friends for, for years, and uh, Isaac's just been such a, such a homie and uh, really just carries a heart for people. They both do carry an amazing heart for people, and uh, Isaac is an amazing teacher. So we're honored to have him. Uh, we're excited for what the Lord is going to do. So let's give it up for Isaac as he brings the word. What's up, Breakthrough Church? My wife's here, Olivia. Our beautiful daughter, Sayla. You can stand up. You can show her off. You know, they, I used to hate when my parents did that. You know, like when you're a kid and like your parents always want to show you off. I'm like, stop. But like, now I get it. Like, we've kept her alive for like a long time. <laughs> That's something to be proud of. Um, so... Men's group. When is that again? Uh, Saturday, 530 at HQ. Saturday, 5.30 at HQ. I want to see some men out there, please. Come on. Um, I'll just say this. I've been meeting with Daniel, or met with Daniel Barry. Last time, there was one man that showed up. Oh. It's also Women's History Month, so happy Women's History Month. Just a walk around this table. But I will say this, um, despite what you think theologically about men or women in church, you know, you can have a diversity of views, um, whatever, you know, that's, that's the house of the Lord. From my experience, Breakthrough Church has largely been built on the backs of women. There have been so many Sundays I've come in and there's nobody but maybe like one man and women setting up. Come on. And what I love about God is he's not... You can have whatever view you want about who's called to this role or that goal, but he's not going to wait to build his church because people are inactive, right? The same way that, you know, the Jews were called for the Messiah, and the Lord says, that was your calling, but we're going to give it away because you're not active. You know, God's not going to wait to build his house, right? So thank you, God, for, for using the people that are sold out to this house. Right? Yeah. All right, Andrew, I'm done with the rebukes. Um, me and Andrew used to preach off every Sunday when Breakthrough started, and it was, it was vastly different. Um, I'll put it that way. But I'm done with the rebukes. All right, so today, the title of this message is called The Battle of the Soul. Is there any cool graphic up? No? It's called Worship Trial. Uh, I think last week, Andrew talked about the battle of the mind. So today we're going to talk about the battle of the soul. It's a pretty simple message, but if you can come away with a few visuals, that would be, you know, on my heart. I'm a very visual person. I'm also a teacher at heart. That's one of my gifts. And, you know, for years I thought that the gift of teaching meant that you could take something simple and make it super complex, right? If you've ever scrolled down on your Instagram sermons and stuff, you know, like, it's, it can be overwhelming, right? I heard a, a message on the word clean in the Bible, and it was like, you know, I need to build my life around this word. And then next week comes around, and they've taken something small and expanded it so much. And it's hard to keep up. But what I've found personally is that a good teacher can take the complex things and make it simple, right? And so that's my hope is to take something that may seem a little bit complex 
and to kind of simplify it and give you a sort of visual, okay? So the battle of the soul. In the Bible, there's something about the number three, right? You have the Trinity, right? Father God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, right? In the beginning was God who has had no image, right? For who has seen the image of God, he is spirit. You have the spirit hovering over the, uh, the void of the earth, and you have Jesus who is there because he says, let us make man in our image. So the image lifts God, says, let us make man in our image. And so you have a trinity, and he makes uh, the earth, right, which is, you know, what do you need for, for earth? You have my nerds out there. You need, uh, for existence, you need um, time, space, and matter, right? You have solid liquid gas. Even in the Jewish culture, the word three means absolute. And so in the Bible, when you see something say holy, 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 at the third time, it means absolute. So if you're in a debate with a Jewish man, and he's like, hey, man, did you step in my shoes? And you're like, no. And he's like, did you step on my shoes? You're like, no. If you say it a third time, it's absolute. You don't have to make a promise. If you say it a third time in Jewish culture, it means you don't even have to worry about me lying. It is absolute. So there's something about the number three in the Bible, right? And even in that same uh, scheme, did you know that us humans were actually made into three parts? And so there are actually three parts of us. We're not just one being. There is spirit, there is soul, and there is body, right? And the Bible, you can see different verses. Uh, One of the verses I like is, You know, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even into the divisions of soul and spirit. It makes a distinction between your soul and your spirit. You also have a flesh, okay? Your flesh is your physical body. And so I want to kind of introduce this dilemma that we have about the Christian existence. Can you put up Galatians, please? Galatians 5. This is Paul speaking to the church in Galatia. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets this desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And this is an interesting verse because he's talking to believers. We know he's talking to believers because he wrote this letter for the church. And number two, he's referencing that these are people that have a spirit in them, right? A lot of times we have this idea that when I get saved, there's no more flesh. There is no more sin. There's nothing I have to deal with. And and we kind of hide away the existence of our flesh. But it is very much there, right? And there's actually where we're made into three parts, spirit, soul, and body. There's actually three different forms of sanctification, right? Let me get the, the theological stuff out the way. So the spirit... Right? When Adam was in the garden, he was a complete man. God said, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Yeah. Um, That's right. Um, And actually, he says, he doesn't say you will surely die. The actual word says, dying, you will die. And what happens is when Adam eats the fruit, he doesn't fall down dead. But what happens is that he is no longer a fit dwelling place for the spirit of God. And so the spirit of God is now lifted from him and now cursed is the dust of the earth, God says. And so now Adam has lost the spirit of God and he is a soul in a flesh. Like any other, you know, animal out there. And the idea of Jesus is Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. 
And so when Jesus comes, what he does at the very end, once he's resurrected, he breathes into the disciples and he says, receive my spirit. The same way that God breathed into the dust of the ground, he breathes into the disciples and says, receive my spirit. And then when the Holy Spirit falls on the Jews, another wind comes, like the breath of God. Same thing with the Gentiles. The breath of God comes. And now the Spirit is alive and is Christian. That's what happened when you got saved. The difference between Christians and unbelievers is not that we're good and they're bad. The difference is that we're alive and they're not. And that's a very big distinction because one thing that gets on my nerves is when Christians are so shocked that the world is so worldly. Like, did you expect anything better? Like, we're like, oh, the world is getting so worldly, we have to do something about it. And it's like, no, Jesus said it's going to get worse. The world is worldly. What they need is life. They need people that have life in them to say, hey, it's, you're not, it's not that you are choosing something. You don't have an alternate choice. Right? And so this is the dichotomy that we face. You know, I'll, I'll put it um, another way. This, I don't have a slide for this, but Romans 7 says this. This is also Paul talking. He says, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but it's sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil thing I don't. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul is talking about the distinction between his flesh and his spirit. He's saying, I'm trying to live by the spirit, but there's something about the flesh that's drawing me in, right? And um, before I kind of give you this visual, it's not forever. The moment that you receive the very spirit of Christ living in you, that spirit is perfect. You have a very perfect You have the perfection of the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Even when you die and go to heaven, it won't get any more spiritual. That very Spirit is 100% sanctified. It is perfect. Your flesh, there's no hope for. The only hope we have is what Paul says, that one day we will receive a heavenly body that will be renewed as intended without the nature of the flesh that we made of spirit. But until that day, we kind of got to deal with it. And the third sanctification is the sanctification that happens for us every day. It's our soul that is choosing to live by the spirit and not the flesh every day. Right? And so I want to give you this picture. Can I get two chairs up here? You know what? God provides. (laughs) Thank you, though. There's one. I'm sorry, y'all didn't want to be in the front row. Now you're in the front row. Hey, let me see. Let me see the baby jacket. I just want to show y'all how cute this North Face is. All right, so this is what's going on. I'll fix them. 
All right. You got flesh and spirit, and you have a soul. The spirit is the very life of God. The flesh is this very physical body that has been cursed like the dust of the ground. And my soul is me. It is my heart. It's my mind. It's my thoughts. It's my personality. It is the things that make me me. Everyone that has a spirit looks the exact same. My spirit looks like your spirit. Your spirit looks like your spirit. Because it's not our spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. The flesh just looks like doo-doo. I'm sorry. It's terrible. And now this soul is the thing that makes us different. It's our personality. It's the different uh, measures of the characteristics of God's that we each have different, you know, uh, measurements of. And so this is my heart, my, my mind, my, my soul. This is the way I think. This is the way I feel. And what's happening is now there is, for the Christian, there is a pendulum that's going on. Yeah. And you are swinging from one way to another. Not even every day. But every moment you are choosing between one of two realities. You are living by the spirit or you're living by the flesh. The sad news for now is that we don't defeat sin in this life. Paul never says that you stop sinning. What he says is that if you live by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so what he's saying is, listen, there are some of you out there that are trying to put this false idea that, oh, there's no sin in me. There's nothing going on, right? I have no temptation. But what he's saying is that's going to be there till the day that Jesus returns and replaces this. But he says, our hope is not that we defeat sin, but that if we live by the spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so in every moment, there is a pendulum going on. You're swinging from one side to the other. And right now, what we do when I read the word, when I pray, when I worship, when I'm in community, is I'm slowly teaching my soul to recognize and live by this instead of that. Right? And there are some of us that are Christians, but we've gotten used to sitting in this chair. And we come to breakthrough and we're like, oh man, this is amazing. And I'm hyped up. And then Monday happens. And you're like, oh man, am I saved anymore? And the answer is yes, but you could be living under more inheritance, right? The idea here is not that if I, oh man, if Jesus comes when I'm sitting here, I'm going to hell. If he comes over here, I'm going to heaven. No, what he's saying is because you have the spirit of God living in you, you're going to heaven. But why would you stumble into heaven? You know, why live in bondage when you've been made to be free? And so the idea here is that every day as I battle sin, as I conquer sin, as I, as I, as I weed out the things in my life, as I, as I identify the voice of the Lord in my body, in my mind, I'm learning to sit more and more here. My goal is not that next year or next week I will be perfect. My goal is that I will start sitting here more than I did there. And in 10 years, I will be sitting here a lot more than I did there. Amen? Amen. And so I want you to have that picture in your mind. There is a pendulum that's swinging back and forth. And if you live by the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. There are some of us, there are some of us that are struggling with sin in this very room. And the shame that comes with that is because I sin, I am sin. 
But the truth is that no, there's a better option out there, right? Sin is to miss the mark. It's not that you have chosen sin, is that what God has for you, the enemy has a counterfeit that you're choosing over that, right? And so I just, that's, if you could get anything out of that, I want you to understand that there's a pendulum going on, okay? Deal? All right, I'll pray us out. I'm just kidding. Um, now, one, well, while your soul is in the middle of these two, it's not just you. The battle goes on that there are things that are outside of you that are trying to get you to sit in one seat or another. There is the Lord, and there is the enemy. And there are voices out there that are trying to pull you into one direction. Here's the thing about those voices, right? Jesus says, my sheep, they hear my voice, a stranger that will not follow. It is admittedly hard to identify the voice of the Lord because the devil has, has, has done such a good job of putting out such, um, such presentable counterfeits that it is very hard to tell the difference, right? Because here's the goal of the enemy. The enemy wants to lead you to death. Jesus wants to lead you to life. But here's where it gets tricky. The way that the enemy leads you to death is that along the way to death, he gives you glimpses of things that feel like life. Right? If you've ever, if any of you have ever sinned, you know that when you're sinning, it doesn't feel like the worst thing in the world. When your desires of the flesh are satisfied, it can feel, it can trick you into feel like you are receiving life. But the interesting thing about that is that the devil leads you to death and along the way gives you glimpses of life, but Jesus leads you to life and along the way you get glimpses of death. This sanctification process isn't all, you know, rainbows and hippos. It's hard. My flesh really wants this option. But what happens is along the way to life, I must die to myself. And although it feels like death sometimes, it is the Lord actually leading me to life, but it's not the life I'm choosing, it's the life he has for me. Yes. Can we go to John 16, 8? This is in reference to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is, uh, is gonna go up to heaven and the disciples are like, no, no, we want you here. And Jesus is like, it's actually better than I go because the one that's coming is greater than I. And what he's saying is, listen, y'all have gotten used to me walking next to you, but what's even better for you is that I walk in you. And that's the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and he, Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is that process to life that feels like death. When the Lord convicts you, it's not fun. It can be because you feel the life at the end. But here's a big difference I want us to catch. There is a difference between conviction and condemnation. Right. 
they can sound very similar and the enemy does a good job at trying to mix up the two. Because both of them are referencing sin. But the difference is that conviction, conviction, say I sin, say I'm sitting in that chair, conviction says you are not living up to who you really are. I'm calling out your sin because that is not you. While condemnation says, I'm calling out your sin because that's who you really are. You don't deserve this chair. In fact, you could lose that at any time. And so we need to be aware that one leads to life and one leads to death. The difference is that both, although they both call out sin, one says, calls out sin to convince you that you're this. The other one calls out sin to convince you that you're not that and you're this. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And it takes a while, at least it took a while for me, to understand the difference between conviction of sin or condemnation of sin. Right? When I used to preach up here, you know, some people will call like rebuke or whatever. I'm like, hey, as long as it's conviction, I'm fine with it. Right? I'm good with that. That's Holy Spirit. That's not me. And condemnation really does a work to you. Condemnation takes your eyes off of this and tries to convince you that you're that. And it actually, the, the, the goal is that it stunts your growth because the longer that you deal with condemnation, the less you're being sanctified and being led into this area, right? For me, there's no such thing as neutral. There's only growth. You're only going forward or backwards because if I don't go forwards and backwards tomorrow, I've lost the day. Right, And the enemy would love to preoccupy you and keep you where you're at because you lose out on your days. And I want to give you one last story about the, uh, just a, an example of condemnation. There was once a boy named James. This is a true story. Um, are you James? Okay. There's somebody over there. I saw you wink. Okay. Not him. There was a boy named James, he's not in this room. <laughs> James was born at the end of the 1800s. His family called him Jimmy. He was born to a, uh, a rather nice family. But at the age, but the thing is, he had an older brother named David. David was 13 years old, and his mom would always say that David was his, her favorite son. She would always say that David was perfect. David was her favorite son. And at the age of six, the day before his 14th birthday, David dies. He's on a skating rink the day before his 14th birthday. He, he slips and falls and busts his head on the ice. And so now James, Jimmy, is dealing with the death of his brother and his mother goes into a deep depression. For years, she's locked in her room, depressed, crying in her bed. And as a six-year-old who needs his mother, Jimmy would go into that room, and his mother would actually condemn him because she missed David. And he writes in his autobiography that he would walk into that room as a little kid, and she would say, don't come here because you're not David. 
And year after year, day after day, she would tell him how upset that she was that he was there and David wasn't. And it got to the point that, that, that her brain started being so depressed that she started getting out of her normal mind. So Jimmy started dressing up like David. And he would spend time with his mom, pretending to be David, just to get some affection until she realized that it wasn't David and she would condemn him. And Jimmy talks about how he went through this identity crisis because of the condemnation that he he got. And in fact, um, you can put that picture up. This is a picture of Jimmy. Because in his most formative years, he received so much condemnation, so much guilt, so much shame. Actually, even though his family, some of them were over six foot tall, Jimmy didn't turn over five foot tall until he was 20. Because every day he was receiving that negative voice, Jimmy didn't turn, didn't grow to over five foot tall until he was past the age of 20. This is a medium-sized dog, by the way. (laughs) This is what condemnation does. It stunts your growth. The voice of the accuser, this is what it does. It stops you from growing It puts you in a place where now Jimmy has been emotionally damaged. He's been physically, his body was, you know, I don't know the biology of it, but but it stunted, the stress stunted his growth because he lived in that condemnation for so long. Now, the beauty of the story is that, you know, Jimmy, although he he was kind of stuck in a childish mind and in a childish body, he actually did something incredible. He actually starts writing about it and he actually writes novels um, about kids that never have to get older. And his most famous work was Peter Pan. And so this is J.M. Barry. He's actually the author of Peter Pan, a land where kids can go without any condemnation. They don't have to grow up, and they can just be. Guys, this is what condemnation does to us. But here's the beauty. Can we do Romans 8.1? At the end of that, Paul, after he says, I'm doing the very thing I do not want. I no longer do what I do, but sin which dwells in me. I find the principle is evil and present in me. He says, but I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body? This is the end of seven. Chapter seven, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And the very next verse is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You have been freed of condemnation. You can hear it but it is not yours. And now when the enemy says, you are this, this is where you sit, this is the chair that's built for you, you are now able to say, thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ, because now there is no condemnation. There's a better option for me. There's now life inside of me. 
And then can we do uh, 8.16? This is a, a little after in the chapter, in the 16th verse. It says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. For every voice of condemnation, there is a voice of the Holy Spirit living inside of you that says, no, stand up. You are a child of God. Every time you hear condemnation, there is the Lord who can speak actually louder saying, nope, get up. Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ because there is no condemnation because the Spirit in you now testifies that you are sons and daughters of God. And he says, stand up, sit right here. That's what repentance is. You know, a lot of times we've, um, we've created repentance of sin to be apologizing for doing bad things. But if you look at the verse, if you look at the, the structure of the words, repentance means to turn away from, sin is to miss the mark. It means stop missing. It doesn't mean that I have to apologize for sin. It means that repentance of sin means that stop missing the mark. To turn away from missing the mark means that I sit over here. And so true repentance isn't, oh, Lord, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this? True repentance is thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ that there is now no condemnation. And the Holy Spirit in me testifies that I am the son of God. You know, um, I'll, I'll end with this. You know, one of my favorite uh, parts of the prodigal son <clears throat> Because this is, you know, I got saved at the age of 19 in Richmond, Virginia, off in college doing, you know, sitting in this chair. Um, and so, so repentance is something that I had to live through and, and understand. And I realized for so long I had thought that, you know, I have, to, I have to apologize so much for sinning until it hit me one day that repentance from sin means just to sit on this chair. And w one of the beautiful parts about the prodigal son is that when he is at his lowest point and he's out of money, and he's like, I'm going to go home. What he does on the way back, he actually rehearses his apology. You know, it's kind of funny. He says, I'm going to tell my dad, oh, dad, sorry, bring me in like one of your hired servants. And he actually says that before he leaves and he rehearses it on the way. And the beauty is that when he encounters his dad, he starts apologizing. He's like, oh, dad, bring me in as one of your hired. And his dad gives him a hug and says, let's go. The reason he does that is because he thought that apology for sin was repentance, but his, sad, his dad said, no, repentance is to turn away from sin and come to me. And so actually, the mo he was waiting to apologize to his father as, the, as, as, as repentance of sin, but his father said, the moment that you repented was actually when you were at the pig trough and said, I'm going to turn away and walk back. And he says, you don't have to give me an apology because your repentance was the moment that maybe I didn't even see that you turned around and started walking back. Now, there are moments where I'm sitting here where I have to kind of, you know, wrestle with the, the nature of my sin and realize that this is not who I am. And the Lord is actually, the Holy Spirit is actually convicting me and, and, and he'll point out the ugliness, not of me, but the ugliness of sin so that I can you know, fully digest that there is a better option that I have a father waiting for me. But like I said earlier, the difference is the goal is to sit there, not to die here. That's good. That's good. Right? So worship team, we can, uh, we can come on up.